psalm of the day is Psalm 150. Listen to God's word. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with a trumpet sound. Praise him with the lute and the harp. Praise him with the trampoline and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with the sounding cymbals. Praise him with a loud crashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. All men are like grass and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall. But the word, word of our God stands forever. Our epistle lesson this morning is found in 1 Corinthians 40. Or 14. That would be a new chapter. Um, verses 1 through 40. We have a long passage this morning as Paul deals continues to deal with the issues in the Corinthian congregation around worship. Listen carefully to God's word. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes... How will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you'll be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves... Since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing praise with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, Will they not say that you are out of your minds? 
But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge the things that I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues. But all things should be done decently and in order. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we look at a tremendously long and difficult passages, passage with many different concerns in it, we ask for your help. Lord, we ask that you would speak, for your servants are here to listen. Amen. Over the years, I've had the privilege of walking with a lot of couples through the engagement process as they prepare to marry. Typically, this involves a, several different sessions Uh, We're working with couples through a typical set of issues. Now, the couple's felt need for those issues is not extremely high because they're thinking they're just perfectly in love and nothing is ever going to go wrong, nor are they ever going to face any serious challenges in their commitment to one another. Normally, my job is, is to just flag issues and say, hey, this is the kind of stuff you're going to be dealing with, and you really need to pay attention to this. Now, some weeks I have their attention immediately when we do the uh, sex week and things like that. They they tend to uh, respond and be very interested. But then you have certain weeks where you have to talk about really important stuff that just isn't terribly interesting. And getting them to do the homework for something like how do you budget as a couple just doesn't normally get done. It doesn't get accomplished. The felt need to talk about something like that and work on that just doesn't get very high, doesn't rise over the surface. When we look at 1 Corinthians 14, verses 1 through 40 this morning, we're encountering something like that. It's something like the budgeting assignment that I give to my premarital couples. It feels like this is not very important. This doesn't really apply. But guys, just like budgeting is an essential task to having a healthy marriage, to be able to agree about the priorities and values of money and how it works in the family and how that simple process can make or break a family, 1 Corinthians 14 is essential for us as a family. Our felt need may not be very high, but for us to function day in and day out, 
it is very important for us to key in about what the Apostle Paul is saying to the church here in Corinth. He sums up his whole message in verse 40. Follow with me there. But all things should be done decently and in order. Now, of all the denominations, Presbyterianism has maximized this verse. Okay? We have taken this one to the outer limit okay, of what you can do. We have something called a book of church order. Do you know where we got that name? Right here. Okay? We believe in decency and good order. And so this morning, as we look at 1 Corinthians 14, what we're really uh, addressing is the question, how do we properly order? How do we properly organize our church's life, where you have a body of people living together with different gifts that sometimes pull them in different directions, different backgrounds. How do you organize that body of people? And what we find in 1 Corinthians 14 are three main principles about what a well-ordered church looks like and how that well-ordered church operates. Here's the first one. We see that a church with good order appreciates why Good order is actually necessary. Okay, Follow with me in verse 33. Paul says it very clearly here at the end of the passage. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And we have seen that the Corinthian congregation was a congregation torn apart by different rivalries, by different factions, by different parties, and particularly those who were vying for control. That they had some... Uh, theology that was actually dysfunctional and broken, and that they had some views of sexuality that were wrong, that some of the women in the congregation were misbehaving, that some of the other leaders were taking advantage of the poor and going ahead of them in the worship service and not allowing them to participate in the Lord's Supper. We've seen all kinds of manners of problems in the Corinthian congregation. But in chapter 12, we see Paul particularly addressing these problems as they were surfacing in the worship service. And what happens is that some of the gifts that the Corinthians were prizing, particularly the gift of speaking in tongues, they were saying this is so important, and some were then vying for airspace. They were vying for the chance to show off their gift. And that there was arrogance attached to this. And that they were then trampling on the rights of the other members. And Paul addresses them saying, you are just speaking over one another and it's just complete chaos. And so he organizes them. And it's very simple what he says in verses 26 through 32. He says, what then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. And this is going to be the apostles' main principle about good church order, is do this for the edification of one another. Don't do it in a chaotic way. And then 27, if any speak in a tongue, let there be two or three at most, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. And then he says something similar about those who prophesy or those who teach. Let there be two or three, and then let their teaching be weighed in judgment. And so he's just assigning an order to things where simply people who were being flashy and showy were not able to dominate the worship assembly because that was what was happening here in Corinth. Now, people sometimes ask, why is that exactly necessary? Because if you were to look at this order of worship, it's pretty bare bones, especially when you compare it to what we do, and I know that. But what Paul does here is he is saying that order allows for love 
to flow and to function. You can see how difficult things would get in Corinth with all these rivalries and factions, and then they're speaking over one another in the worship service, interrupting each other, and some are exalting themselves and putting themselves before others. And the argument that Paul's making in chapter 14, you must remember, follows chapter 13, which is his beautiful exaltation of the role of love in the Christian life. And so he's continuing that argument. And church order, friends, is related to loving one another and serving one another well. And so while not an extremely sexy topic and something that everybody just jumps on board and wants to read, I know some of you do your devotional reading out of the book of church order. It'll put you to sleep. But it is essential to the functioning of a church life. It allows love to operate. Now, the thing is, is that church order is also to be written and designed in a loving way that allows for fellowship to take place. And this is why Paul begins the whole chapter with these words, pursue love. Okay? That love allows for peace and order allows for peace and for people with various interests coming from various different backgrounds with various different gifts to live together as one body. And so it's important for us just to recognize that that love is essential to the functioning of the church, and the church needs to be very aware that good order allows for that love to flourish. And several years ago, I had a young pastor uh, give me a ring because he had gotten sideways, actually, with several members in his church. What happened is the church was hiring a senior pastor. And the, the group of pastors that this young pastor was, was representing had decided that they were going to interview the candidates first prior to the search committee doing so. Now, let me explain something about Presbyterianism and search committees. The BCO, the Book of Church Order, says that uh, the search committee is to interview those candidates. And so the pastors had introduced this other level. And some people in the congregation got upset by that. They They were mad, and they said, no, you're actually going outside of the Book of Church Order. And so what happened is the pastor didn't really understand because he didn't really pay attention to it. And he didn't understand because he felt like his intentions were good and he couldn't understand now why all his relationships were sideways. But guys, one of the reasons that we do good order and why we have something like a book, a rule book that guides our life, is it gives us something that we can buy into. That gives us some rails and some guidelines, especially for how we're going to work through difficult things, how we're going to elect officers, how we're going to make decisions about property, how we're going to do all these different things in life that can become enormous moments of tension. And they can divide congregations and fracture them and cause all kinds of of deep, deep problems. And so when my friend asked me, you know, what do I do? And I just simply could say, you know, I think you just need to submit to what the book says because that's what everybody bought into, okay? And you just got to operate according it until that rule changes and everybody buys into that change. And so, friends, that's the spirit of love and why we use something like a book of church order. It is so that love can function and flow and that we can live together uh, at peace. And so now I don't ask you to know the book of church order. All I ask you to do is know that it exists. Okay. Uh, and that's about good enough. Okay. Some of us are, uh, are commissioned to know what it says. Those are your officers and we have to work with it and we have to understand it. But what you can know is that that book simply represents your rights, gives your interest to us and gives us a way of doing life that protects you. 
because everything in that big old thick book that's an expansion on this little verse, do all things decently in good order, exists normally because something bad has happened at some point in the history, okay? So it's designed to protect you, to allow love to, uh, to flow and to flourish in our midst and to allow us to have peace, okay? And so value order and know that it's important. Now, the second thing that we learned, the second principle, is that good order prioritizes the church's edification. Paul gets into a very difficult conversation in verses 1 through 25. And no doubt you have many questions about what he means about people who are speaking in tongues and people who are prophesying. And many people will ask, well, are those things still relevant for today? You notice that he mentions those who are speaking in tongues And Paul seems to have two things in mind here. And these were particularly alive and well during the apostolic period prior to the uh, fulfillment of the New Testament canon. But Paul in chapter 13 in verse 1 speaks of the gift of tongues. And he says that there are tongues of men and tongues of angels. And so people ask, well, what exactly is this gift of tongues? And in looking at the New Testament, we can affirm very clearly that the gift of tongues was on one hand, it was a speaking of human languages to those who had not heard the gospel, like on the day of Pentecost, where people from many different nations were there, and the apostles had a miraculous gift of preaching the gospel in known languages that they didn't know, and people heard about Jesus for the first time. That seems to be part of the gift of tongues. There's also something strange here in 1 Corinthians 14, referring back to chapter 13, where there is some kind of perhaps angelic speech, a language of heaven that is not known. Okay? And we can simply affirm what the Bible says and that this is real. Because what Paul presses back against, and whether this operates today is another question, but he says, you Corinthians are exalting yourself and you think that the gift of tongues is everything. And he's pressing back against that and saying it's not. In fact, he wants them to pursue something else, what he calls prophecy. And then he explains what that prophecy is. If you follow with me, in verse 3 he begins. He says, on the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people of their, for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. And so prophecy has something to do with building up the body and strengthening our fellow believers. And then if you follow into verse 6, he says, Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? And so once again, we have a reference to some kind of instruction. And then in verses 24 and 25, you see that he refers to prophecy. And this time, it is in the context of the gathered congregation where an unbeliever then says, because he's heard the teaching, surely the living God is among you. Okay, and so what is the sum of all of this? It is the gifts that direct the church in teaching and, uh, and explaining the gospel. Okay? That this is what prophecy is. is. It's for the edification and upbuilding of the church, for the strengthening of it as doctrine is taught, as teaching is given. And so it's good for all. It's good for the believer and the unbeliever. And so what Paul is arguing is that a well-ordered church knows that it needs to exalt that gift of prophecy over teaching in tongues. Look what Paul himself says about about it. He says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. 
And then he says, verse 19, nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. And friends, this is what we have to affirm about good church order, is that it prioritizes the church's edification, the building up of the church. Look what he argues in verse 12. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. And so if your gifts are dividing the church and causing chaos, actually pull back on them and actually press forward these gifts that always bring about the edification of the church. And friends, this is why in our own theological tradition, we have such an emphasis on the word of God and gathering week by week on the Sabbath day to hear the word of God. Because it's there that by the Spirit, God addresses us. The same Spirit who there and then spoke and inspired that word is here and now working in our midst, revealing and illuminating all that God has said. And so we have this powerful encounter, as if God's speaking as we read this word today, and we hear him. And the gifts of prophecy, the gifts of teaching that exist in our congregation, in our congregational communities, and in our pulpit ministry, these are for the edification, upbuilding, consolation, encouragement, instruction of the congregation. And so we prize this. When it comes specifically to the gift of tongues, people will ultimately ask, what are my own personal views? There are some people in our tradition who will argue that the gift of tongues expired at some point after the apostles uh, fully gave us the canon of Scripture. And guys, that's a very solid, strong argument. I simply can't find the Bible verse that, that substantiates that completely. And so for my own part, I've said, you know, that is a strong argument to recognize and to respect I do think that the gift of tongues could exist today where you have gospel proclamation in need and where you have people who've never heard the gospel before. And so I'm open on that regard. And I would just say you could best characterize my position as open but cautious um, on these things, uh, not knowing exactly how God works. And specifically when it comes to this angelic language that the Bible doesn't give us very much. And it's very difficult, and we find ourselves strained to actually understand what Paul says. But I think the passage is very clear that the gift of tongues was actually dividing the community, and Paul is saying, pull back from that. Don't emphasize it. What you need to be doing is this. And friends, that's where we can all agree on the application, is that this is what we pursue is that we preach and we teach and we bring ourselves under the word of God and that we have this encounter where the secrets of our hearts are disclosed in front of God and we say, surely the living God is here in our midst. That was what Paul wanted in Corinth. He wanted them to do away with these showy manifestations of, of their great exalted gifts that made much of themselves. And he wanted them gathered around the word of God making much of God, allowing him to work and reveal and disclose the secrets of the heart. And so that's how we apply these things. The final piece of good order here is that good order requires structure and authority. 
As you get to the end of chapter 14, there are troublesome verses for many people when we come to verses 33 through 35. Once again, Paul says, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. It's, of course, very controversial today, and people find them difficult to understand exactly what is being said. It's difficult because just ahead of this in chapter 11, we find that women were praying and prophesying in the congregation. You can simply look in verse 5. And guys, the task for us as Christians reading Scripture today is affirm what the Bible says. And so we can affirm that God speaks a yes to women in their involvement in the church and its ministries. That we say that with 1 Corinthians 11 verse 5. And then that there is a no spoken here as well. And the task for us, the very arduous and difficult task, is to discern what the yes is and what the no is. And how do we allow both of those to live together and satisfy what Scripture is saying, even when sometimes it's not exactly perfectly clear? Because some people would read these verses and say, see, a woman is supposed to never speak in church. And the question is, well, how far does that go? Do they not get to pray? Do they not get to sing? Do they not get to answer the call to worship? How far do we go with it? And what are women allowed to do? And we have to explore that. And then we also have to explore what is it that women are being forbidden from here? What is Paul saying there is a no to? And I'll give you my best understanding of this passage. You see just above these verses that Paul is speaking about the prophets. He says, let two or three prophets speak. And then he explains very clearly that they are to allow the other prophets weigh in on what was said. That is found in verse 29. And then in verse 32, he says, and the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. Okay, and so there was a sifting process because you have to remember that this church was gathered before they had scripture. This is early on in the New Testament church's life. This is a young church with many problems. And so the teachers would stand and they would teach. And then there was a sifting process, a discernment process. Now, I believe that that discernment process was exercised by those in authority in the congregation. This congregation, we know from the book of Acts, uh, had many people who were out of the Jewish synagogue in it, and it also had many Greco-Roman converts. And so they would have inherited that structure of elders. And so those who sat in authority over the interpretation of the teachings that were given would have been the elders of the church. And so what is Paul saying when the women are to keep silent? I believe that's a direct reference to this sifting and discerning if what had been said was true. Okay? And so it's not that women did not speak in the worship assembly. We know that they did from 1 Corinthians 11. But what they did not engage in was the sifting and discerning and the judging of what had been spoken. But Paul is advocating that that is not part of their role. It's also not the role of everyone in the congregation. He restricts it to those who fall under this class of prophets, who I'm saying I believe is the church's leadership. And so it's not just a man versus a woman thing, and no value is being assigned here, but rather it's a role and a calling that God has assigned to certain people inside the church. 
to sit in those positions of authority. And so we don't have men who are worth a quarter and women who are worth a dime. That is not the Bible's understanding of male and female. But rather, we have qualified men who are called to this particular task, assigned by God to sit in authority, and by the way, be the ones who act in sacrificial ways to serve the good of that body. And that is what was not happening in Corinth. This is why Paul writes chapter 13. He tells them what the love of the gospel is to look like as it transforms them and works through them horizontally around. That they are to be the ones who give over their lives for the good of all involved. That that is what biblical leadership is ultimately about. And so good order is always going to work with structure. It's going to work with authority and know that that structure and authority exist for the flourishing and functioning of the body of Jesus in the world. And friends, those are the principles of good order. Not something we exactly love to delight ourselves in. But good order exists for the life of the gospel as the church moves forward, so that the church can be built up, so that we can live as a community of peace, because our God is a God of peace. He is the one who has sent the peaceful word of Jesus Christ into the world. He's the one who's reconciled the irreconcilable. He is the one who's brought us into relationship with himself. And because we've experienced that great love, and now that we have peace with him, his community, of course, is to reflect that peace as well. And so, friends, our great challenge is to have the peace of God dwell among us as we organize and order our life in sensible ways that respect one another and promote one another and honor each other, all in faithfulness to Scripture. And so that is our great task. That is the strenuous calling that we undertake. And so let's go to God in prayer this morning, and let's ask for him to help us in that. Let's pray.